Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I stated at the beginning of the service, we're beginning a a four-week sermon series walking through each chapter of the book of Ruth, a a book that starts with tragedy and, and ends with a foreigner, a Moabite woman in the line and ancestry of Jesus. In between, it's a beautiful love story, a beautiful story of commitment and devotion, and a great reminder of God's personal care for each one of us. I'm going to really date myself now, and I realize that. Who are my little house on the prairie people here who've watched or read the books? Okay, we got quite a few. I believe there's like nine books in the Little House on the Prairie series, and I don't know how many seasons that show lasted on television. But did you feel like this sometimes if you either read or watched the show? How many more tragedies can one family go through? Life on the frontier was never easy, was it? And as you watch them go through those trials and tragedies, one of the things that came out both in the books and the television show is how important their faith in God was to them, to help them through the difficult times. I think the story of Ruth is a lot like that because it begins with this tragedy and and, and life in the days of the judges, as we'll see in just a minute, wasn't an easy time to live either. But even in the midst of tragedy, God delivers through his promises. He delivers through triumphs in this life, but especially in the life that is to come. And so today, as we take a look at Ruth chapter 1, we'll do it under this theme, tragedy and commitment. And we'll see two things through the course of walking through the chapter today, that God fills hearts with faith. And then it's God who fills the empty with hope. What I'd love for you to do is follow along. If you'd like to do that, you can just listen as well. I'm going to read the version that you have in front of you in the uh, Pew Bibles. And if you want to turn to Ruth chapter 1, it's on page 411, 411. I'll give you a moment to get there. We'll split it into manageable sections that we can just discuss for a couple of minutes each and, and we'll go from there. All right, so Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Again, that's page 411, or just use your ears. That works too. Phones, if you'd like to use those. Here's what it says as we begin the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there, after they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband." I'm just going to give you a little map here to get us started so you can kind of see where we're at in the world. So Bethlehem, very close to Jerusalem in the southern part of what is Israel. And so they made about probably oh, a 50 plus mile journey from the east side, excuse me, the west side of the Dead Sea over to the east side of the Dead Sea and settled somewhere in Moab. That's where we're at. So you can kind of get an idea that 
They had to travel a little ways that would have been a hard journey and how difficult it was to leave their homeland. We're told at the start of the chapter that this happened during the period of Judges. And while that narrows down the time frame for us, it doesn't get very specific. Because the period of the Judges lasted approximately 350 years. From about 1350 B.C. to about 1000 B.C. If you want to think in terms of Bible history, it spans the time of Joshua all the way to the time of King David. That's the period of the Judges. Kind of a little sidelight here. One of the themes that runs through the book of Judges is that Israel had no king. And yet the man who takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab, his name is Elimelech. It means, my God is the king. Kind of a nice confession of faith that his parents made in naming their own son. But they lived in Bethlehem. And interestingly enough, that name Bethlehem means house of bread. Because Bethlehem was supposed to be very conducive to producing crops. And yet a famine had come to the land. And such a severe famine that Elimelech could no longer provide for his family. He could no longer keep them in that land. And so he makes the decision to pack them up, to move to a new place. Certainly they must have had intentions of coming back when the famine had lifted, but that's not exactly what happened. Elimelech knew that his family had to come first, that he had to take care of their needs. And so off they went to Moab. And then you heard what happened. Tragedy. And not just one tragedy, but three tragedies. First, it was Elimelech himself who died. And then after the two sons, Malan and Kilian, had married Moabite women, the two of them died too. In a span of 10 years, Naomi moved from her homeland, lost her husband, and then lost both of her sons. I know they produce those scales of of stressful things in life. She had to be at the top of her stress level with all of the loss that she experienced in her life. The heartbreak certainly is something that we can understand. So let's see what happens next. Take a look at verses 6 to 10 with me. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband." Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi, we'll stop there, right there, that's verse 10. Yep, that's where we want to start. Okay, so in the midst of all of this tragedy, there was a little bit of good news for Naomi. Things were better back in Bethlehem. Food was available again. The crops were growing, and so she makes the decision that she's going to move back to Bethlehem. Here's where it gets a little interesting. The two daughters-in-law decide that they're going to accompany her to Bethlehem. Most likely, they were accompanying her for a time on that journey. That was very much the custom of the day. When somebody was traveling away from your home, you would actually go with them for a period of the journey, and then you would return back to your home as they continued on in the journey. 
But as they went, you hear Naomi explain to her daughters-in-law what she wants for them, the two wishes that she has for them. She takes a, a mild oath, I suppose we could say, and she says, may the Lord allow you to find happiness in the home of another husband, to find rest in the home of another husband. And she also says that she wants them to experience kindness from the Lord in the same way they have shown kindness to her and to her two sons. I want to stop just for a moment because I think this is a, an important point to make. If you notice the name that is used for God in this section, really throughout chapter 1, you see that in the printed text in your English Bibles, it is a capital L followed by a capital O, a capital R, and a capital D. That's not by mistake. It's a very special name for God in the Old Testament, sometimes translated Yahweh or Jehovah. This was the name that reminded people that God is the great I Am, that whatever God promises always comes true. And that's the God that Naomi invokes as she wishes these blessings on her two daughters-in-law. Ruth and Orpah, they resist at first. They want to keep going with her. They don't want to go back to their homeland. They have a deep love and connection to their mother-in-law, Naomi. Can I just have a little aside with the name Orpah? Do you know that that's actually the name that was given to the person we know as Oprah Winfrey when she was born? But people couldn't pronounce it, and so they kept saying Oprah instead of Orpah, and so she just changed it. Can I tell you this? Oprah Winfrey rolls off the tongue a little bit better than Orpah Winfrey. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's actually true that her name on her birth certificate is actually Orpah from the book of Ruth. So the two of them have this connection. But, but here's what Naomi understands. She's telling her daughters-in-law, your future with me is not going to be very great. These are three widows, three people who have lost their husbands, and in the culture of the day, that meant that they had to rely on other people's charity. They had to rely on other people to provide for them. And so Ruth is simply saying, this isn't going to work very well. She actually makes a reference to a law that we're going to talk about in just a moment, as she says to her daughters-in-law, you go back and find a husband. You see, the future hope of these two women, Orpah and Ruth, was not very great. It was a bleak outlook of life if they continued on with Naomi. But we sense the emotion, don't we? All the things that are going on here in the book of Ruth. And so take a look with me at verses 11 to 15. Or 11 to 14 will do, the next verses. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. It's at this point that Naomi becomes a little bit more forceful in what she wants those daughters-in-law to do. She becomes insistent that they go back home. And again, she just knows that if they come with her all the way to Bethlehem, there isn't going to be much of a life for them there. She gives her reasoning. 
She says, even if I had sons that you could marry, would that work? But I'm too old. I can't even have a husband, much less sons. And even if that would somehow happen, that I could have another husband and then have sons, would you wait for them to grow up? And you might be thinking, well, why was that the only option? Again, it's a reference to a law that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But Naomi is laying out for the girls why it's not great for them to come back with her. It might seem a little strange to us, but it's something that God used to provide for his people. And it's here that we first see the bitterness that rages in the soul of Naomi. She actually says this, The Lord's hand has gone out against me. Have you been there? At a spot in life where you feel like God doesn't really know what's going on? And it seems like he could be doing something a little bit different or a little bit better to help you out of a difficult situation. We can understand the bitterness that Naomi felt in her soul. I've had people say to me things like this, I wish God would just help a little bit. Or could God maybe just throw me a bone? And I understand what they mean. When we see the things that in life that kind of crumble all around us, we wonder if God is really fulfilling all of his promises. As Naomi talked with her daughters-in-law, one of them was convinced Orpah went back home. It wasn't that she wanted to. She just knew that the prospects for her were better in Moab than they were in Bethlehem, but not Ruth. Ruth actually clings. She clung to her mother-in-law, we're told. And, and, and that verb in the original Hebrew has this idea of complete devotion, of understanding a, a, a deep love that she had for her mother-in-law. I want to talk to you a little bit about that law, that ordinance that Naomi has been referencing as she talked about this. It's called the Leveret Law. And I put a little cartoon up on the screen. It doesn't quite cover it the way that the Bible does. But if you want to read about the Leveret Law, it's actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And God specifically gave this law so that the name of each family would carry on. And that the portion of land that they had in Canaan, in the promised land in Israel, would go with their family name. So it did kind of work like you see on the screen. If there was a son or a, a man in a family who had brothers, and he was the oldest brother and he got married and his wife passed away and there was no heir, if he had an young, unmarried younger brother it was actually the younger brother's duty to marry the widow of his older brother and the first child they had would be considered not their heir, but the heir of the older brother. Again, it's all tied up with this idea that God wants to provide for a family name, that he wants to allow them to keep the property that was theirs in the promised land uh, connected to their family. But that's the lever at law. The word le le lever, that's actually from the original Hebrew. It means brother-in-law. And so that's exactly what's happening. You might remember that the Sadducees once referred to this law in the New Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they thought they had the perfect question to ask Jesus to trap him. And so they come to him with this scenario about a man who has six brothers. There's seven of them in all. 
And the first brother marries someone and he doesn't produce a child. And so the second brother marries and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way down to the seventh brother. None of them have any children. They all die. And the question the Sadducees had for Jesus is this, whose wife? Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? See, they thought they had Jesus backed into a corner. But Jesus simply said, in heaven, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. That's in Matthew chapter 22, if you want to read that story of Jesus' exchange. But that's the Leveret Law. That's what they were referring to in that section of Scripture. This is going to become important as we move forward in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Uh, and so we'll come back to it again. Let's take a look at verses uh, 15 to 18, please. 15 to 18, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is really, I suppose, the most beautiful part of chapter 1. And maybe if you are familiar with any verses from the book of Ruth, you know verse 16 and 17 of Ruth. Do you know when that's often read? Have you ever heard it at a wedding? Right? Even though it wasn't a promise made between a husband and a wife, it certainly fits, doesn't it? As Ruth makes this promise to her mother-in-law, she doesn't want to go. She wants to stay. She knows what that means. But her commitment is, first of all, her love for Naomi, but that secondly, also her love for the Lord. This is truly the amazing part of the story. See, Ruth was willing to give up, and she did give up. This idea that somehow she could have another husband in Moab, that her life could be easy, she could be provided for, because she knew what she was gaining by going with Naomi. And it wasn't just the love of a mother-in-law that she was giving up or that she was gaining. It was also an opportunity to nurture the faith that she had come to have. She takes a little bit of an oath, I suppose you could say, after she says, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Here's the oath. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything, but death, but death separates you and me. Can I point out again the name that she used for God? The very same name that Naomi did. That capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E, Jehovah, Yahweh, the one who's always faithful to his promises, the God who saves. The story of Ruth doesn't tell us when she came to faith, but through the witness of Ruth, or of Naomi, through the witness of her sons and her husband, this woman became a believer in Jesus. And so she was willing to sacrifice, to sacrifice maybe a little bit of earthly comfort to know that her faith would be nurtured as she went with Naomi to Bethlehem. Maybe that's a good chance for us to just reflect just a little bit this morning. Where our commitment level is. Found this hierarchy of commitment. You can take a look at it and see what you think. You know, people who are truly committed will do it and lead others to do it. And then you have the people all the way at the bottom who refuse to do it and influence others not to do it. And then the middle, the complainers, who should, why should I do it? If nobody says so, and then compliance. I don't know how this fits in with our Christian faith exactly. 
But if I asked you to put us on a scale of 1 to 10, your commitment level to Jesus, maybe right now on Sunday morning, we could make that a pretty high number. After all, we're here, right? We're worshiping. We came to praise our God today and hear a message from his word. But are you like me? Do you find yourself kind of dropping down on that level of commitment sometimes during the week and bobbling back and forth a little bit? Do you find yourself complaining? Maybe God doesn't know what's going on. That maybe God has kind of fallen asleep on the job, that he doesn't know exactly what I need in my life. Or maybe in the compliance part, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what other people think I'm supposed to live like as one of God's people, so that's what I'm going to do. But it's more out of a sense of obligation than commitment. Maybe the story of Ruth is a good chance for us to recommit ourselves, to remind ourselves, first of all, of the reason for that commitment. And the reason for that commitment is found in only one place, the commitment God has to you. You know what that commitment entails. He sent his son, Jesus, into this world to live in your place, to go to a cross for you. Jesus was so committed that he took nails in his hands and feet so that you and I stand before God holy and blameless. That's the commitment God had to save you. And when we remember that commitment that God has to us, it's that that gives us the motivation and the strength to commit our lives to serving him. Let's wrap up the chapter in verses 19 to 22. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned home from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Just to kind of wrap things up, the homecoming that Naomi had as she went back to Bethlehem was kind of a mixed bag. I'm sure there was happiness for her to be back home, and yet she was sad too. As other people looked at her, they were shocked, surprised by how much her life had changed, how much she had lost, to the point that Naomi actually wants them to change her name. I don't know how many of you thought uh, as you named your children or those of you who think about the names that your children might have someday, what the significance of the meaning of the name is. But in the Old Testament times, that was very important. The name Naomi means pleasant or she is pleasant. And so when she comes back, she doesn't feel very pleasant anymore. And so she asks them to call her Mara and that's a Hebrew word that means bitter. Again, that's what was raging inside of her. She felt empty. I went away full, she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. Maybe, again, something for us to learn. Isn't it easy? At least I find it easy to think more about the negative things in life, to fixate on the things that are bad, the things that I wish were different, and then lose sight of the blessings that are a part of my life. And when my focus is off, when I'm focusing on the negative things, it's easy to forget my faith too. I've found, and I'm sure you have too, the more that thankfulness, the more thankful I am for the blessings that I have in my life, the more those negative thoughts seem to stay away. 
God has some great things in store for Naomi and Ruth. They couldn't see it yet, but it's all part of the promises that God has made to us too, that he knows exactly what we're going through, that he has plans for us, plans to prosper and not to harm us, but to give us hope in a future. And at the end of chapter 1, the author of the book of Ruth leaves us with just a little bit of foreshadowing when he tells us the barley harvest has just begun. That's going to become important in chapter 2. All right, some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, God promises to use the circumstances of our lives to serve our eternal good. Romans 8.28 is one of those beautiful promises of God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Number two, Jesus committed himself to saving us, going to a cross to die in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, we are healed. Finally, number three, God's commitment to us leads us to serve him with our lives. It was that commitment that Ruth understood so that she was willing to commit herself not just to Naomi, but also to serving her God. As we have opportunity, Paul wrote to the Galatians, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You probably know this expression, every cloud has a silver lining. There's a lot of debate as to why anybody ever came up with that description. Maybe it has to do with the sun as it's behind the clouds. The clouds pass in front of the sun. You can sometimes see that outline that the clouds have that maybe looks a little silverish or gold. But you probably know the point of the expression, right? That even on the darkest days, even when things seem terrible, God promises that he is using all things for our good. There is good that is going to come out of even the most difficult circumstances in this life. Will we always see it? No. But we know God's promises. And we know that same God that Naomi and Ruth trusted, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, who always is faithful to those promises. This is the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. No matter what tragedy comes, God promises triumph. If not in this life, for sure in the life that is to come. As Paul wrote in, later in chapter 8 of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.